Well, this weekend is uh, a special weekend because it's a weekend that we have set aside in our nation as a memorial. It is specifically to call to mind the price that uh, men and women have paid in the past for the freedoms that we enjoy today. And as we celebrate Memorial Day weekend and Memorial Day tomorrow, um, to, to remember and specifically really pause in gratitude and be aware that you got up this morning and uh, got dressed and got in your car and came to this place without fear. And, uh, and when, when we're done, you're going to go and do whatever it is that you would like to do this afternoon because we live in a land that uh, has that kind of freedom and that a price has been paid in order for it to be possible. And I want us to take this weekend also to just remind ourselves of another life that was given to give another kind of freedom that we can all enjoy, and that is the life of Jesus Christ as He died on the cross to purchase our freedom, to give us freedom from sin, to give us freedom from punishment, to give us freedom from eternal damnation, to give us freedom from the law, to give us freedom from condemnation, to give us freedom from ourselves. That Jesus died in order to make us free. And I thought this would be a good Sunday as I prayed over it, and the Lord just seemed to be impressing it on my heart, that this would be a good time to remember uh, the, the, the wonderful truth that we have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want you to think with me this morning. I'm assuming that I'm talking to an audience of mostly uh, believers. Perhaps all of you are believers in Jesus Christ. And, you know, we need to stop every once in a while and just recall what it is that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Somewhere back along the way before this day, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, you came to the realization that you were a sinful person, that God was a holy God, that you needed a Savior, somehow or another through a message preached or the witness of a friend or a song or a word you heard on the radio, God uh, touched your heart. And you recognized that Jesus Christ was that Savior that you needed and that He had paid the price and you opened your heart to Him. You said something to this effect, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Savior and Jesus Christ died for me. I believe that, that He died on the cross to save me from my sin and I want to accept that payment right now, and I want to invite Him into my life to be my Lord and Savior. Somewhere along the way, you made that kind of decision. Many things happened when you did that in the spiritual realm. Uh, things that you may not even have been aware of. In fact, you probably aren't aware of all of them or weren't at the time. There were transactions that took place in the heavenly realms. There, there were things that happened in the, the judgment halls of heaven that changed your status and opened your life to God in ways that it had not been opened before. And of all of those things that happened, one of them was in that moment you were justified in Jesus Christ. And justification is the, the, the bedrock, the foundation, the, the basis on which every other thing that we have to do with God hinges upon. I'm going to explain justification in a moment, but I just want to underscore what I just said. Without justification, we have no relationship with God. Justification is the basis in which we can begin to have a daily living experience with the living God in terms of a personal relationship. Why is that? 
Because until that moment, you and I are dead in our sins and trespasses, as the Scripture says. And God has an attitude about sin that is really frightening when you think about it. The Bible says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. God has an attitude about sin. He hates it. He can't bear to look at it. He despises it to the uttermost. It calls up within him a, a revulsion that brings a separation and a wall between us and between God that cannot be bridged. And in our sin, there is no way to connect with God. Now, the mercy of God in His grace, thankfully, sustains us and keeps us alive. And uh, God is uh, gracious to us and, and, and He actually kind of puts up with us in many ways until that, that time when we can be rightly related but God's attitude toward people and their sin is, is one of wrath. And the Scripture says that those who die in their sin will in fact face the wrath of God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God because he, he hates sin. And so, something has to be done about that problem. And justification is the action that God takes on our behalf because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to have a relationship with Him. What does justification mean? I have some friends in in pastoral ministry and they say don't use words like that uh, in the pulpit. You have to use simpler terms. Uh, you have to use popular words that people understand. And, and, and my philosophy is, no, you have to use biblical words and explain them. <laughs> you need to understand. You need to know what the Bible says, but you need to understand what it means when it says that. What does justification mean? Well, if you haven't heard this simple way of thinking of it, I'll give it to you. And uh, it'll probably stick. But it's much more uh, profound, I think. Nonetheless, just as if I'd... Never sinned. Justified is just as if I'd never sinned. The Bible says that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and His blood that was shed to cleanse us from sin, that we can come into a relationship with God wherein He treats us as if we had never sinned. It goes something like this. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For God made Jesus Christ to be sin for us, the one who knew no sin, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. So the definition of justification is, it is the action whereby God judicially erases from our record all sin and brings us into a place where He gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ in its stead. So now, instead of appearing before God with sin covering my life that is obnoxious to God, I am able to appear in God's presence with the righteousness of Jesus Christ as my clothing, I am able to appear before Him as holy and as pure as Jesus Christ is. Now, what makes that possible? I'd like for you to turn with me in Galatians. I want to read a few passages from chapters one and or chapters two and three. Galatians chapter two. And let me give you a little background to the book of Galatians as we go here this morning to look at this, because it's important to kind of understand the context. The Galatian church was a church that Paul had uh, seen born because of the preaching of the gospel as he went and shared with them the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And he proclaimed the gospel to them, and they, uh, they trusted Christ and became a church, 
But there were a group of people in Paul's day called the Judaizers that were kind of running around behind him, hoping to clean up his mess. And the way they looked at that was this. They said, Paul's out there telling people that salvation is absolutely free. It's, it's absolutely free in Jesus. Justification is by faith and has nothing to do with the works of the law. And we've got to go straighten that notion out. And their belief was, and these were Christians, at least professing Christians, they had come to faith in Christ, but they believed that Jesus was Messiah, died on the cross for their sins, that they needed to trust Jesus Christ, but they also needed to keep the law. They needed to keep the whole law. In fact, they felt that everyone that came to Christ was kind of like cleaned up so that they could keep the law. And so they went uh, to the church at Galatia, and they began to tell them, Jesus isn't enough. Jesus is important. Jesus is the one who, who uh, cleanses your sin. But now you have to live according to all the rules and regulations of the law uh, in order to be fully acceptable to God. And this is how uh, you complete your salvation, so to speak. And so they had gone to Galatia and they had disturbed the church. And Paul is writing to the church. He's trying to bring them back to the message of grace and the message of salvation by faith. And it's in the midst of this, in chapter 2, verse 15, that he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I, repro- for if I build what I once, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. This is my key verse this morning. For if righteousness comes through the law then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does He then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does He do it by works of law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, in the midst of this church that is struggling over uh, what place does the law have in my life? And do I really need to, to, to turn back to the law now that I've become a Christian? Do I have to follow all the rules and regulations and principles of the law in order to, to be uh, right with God on a, on, a, on a regular basis? And in the end, will I be okay unless I follow all the rules of the law? And Paul makes it very plain that if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Friends, I want to underscore for us this morning, and I want us to to realize that justification by faith, first of all, means that there is nothing we can do preparatory to receiving Jesus Christ that will make us more or less acceptable to God. What do I mean by that? How many of you have been trying to talk to someone about trusting Jesus Christ? And they've said something like this. 
you know, I'm not ready yet. I, I've got, I kind of, kind of got some things in my life that I need to clean up before I can become a Christian. Or I really need to get my life sort of straightened out and start coming to church, and then, then maybe, uh, you know, I, I'll be a little better position. Or, man, there's some stuff, there's some habits I've got. I need to, I need to get those broken before I'm, I'm ready to get religion. You know, that kind of a thing. Sometimes people feel like, well, I've got to do something to get myself in a position where I'm worthy of receiving salvation. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and, and uh, maybe you want to turn over there just for a moment and look at this. In Titus 3, verse 5, in this passage, Paul says uh, this, and it's just very clear. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. You see that? He saved us, past tense, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, through whom, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen, friends, this morning, the message of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone to cleanse us and make us acceptable to God, that message is there is nothing you can do to merit the grace of God in Jesus Christ. A person does not wait until they're better to receive Christ. A person does not wait until they've broken their bad habits. In fact, the Scripture basically says you're wasting your time trying. You can never do that on your own anyway. You need Christ to transform you to begin with. Come to Jesus. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. If the Spirit of God is striving with you, open your heart to Him immediately. Because there's nothing that we can do to improve our situation before we come to the cross of Calvary and bend our knee before Jesus Christ and say, God, I am a sinner. And You, Lord Jesus, have died for me and shed Your blood to cleanse me from my sin. Now, you know, the truth is that most all of us understand that. You know, if I were to have given a, a what they call the pretest, you know, before the lecture, and to find out how, what the knowledge base is when we started, I think most everyone in the room here would say, "Okay, I, I know that. I know that um, I, Jesus Christ alone is my Savior, and He forgives my sin, and He's the one that cleanses me, and I'm justified in Him by faith." But the second part is is the part, and this is the part the Galatians were having trouble with, and this is the part that we have trouble with, is not only is there nothing that we can do before the moment of our conversion to improve our standing with God. Friends, the doctrine of justification by faith means that there is nothing we can do afterwards to make ourselves any more or less acceptable to God than we were the day we were born again. There is no work that I can do after I'm saved that is going to improve my standing with God or make Him love me any more than He does that moment when I open my heart to Jesus Christ. By the works of the law, no flesh is made righteous in His sight. At any point in time. In fact, the Scripture says, Jude, Jude verse 23, God hates the garment that is even spotted by the flesh. And guess what that means? Our righteousness. Isaiah, the very best we have to offer, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Not all of our bad moments, not all of our, our times when we're off our game a little bit, Isaiah says, the best we can do on our own is as filthy rags. You say, I thought that was talking about lost people. That's talking about any people. The best we can do 
is filthy rags. God hates the garment spotted by the flesh. There's not anything that you or I can do after we're saved any more than before we're saved to make ourselves more or less acceptable to God. That's why I said in the beginning, every bit of our relationship with God rests upon justification by faith. When God looks at me, He sees the sinless, pure holiness of Jesus Christ in terms of where I, how I stand with Him. When Jesus died on the cross, do you remember the last words He uttered? It is finished. That Greek word to telestai that you've heard about, it's, it's an economic term. It means the debt is paid. It means it's paid in full. The account is zeroed out. I quoted for you 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But, but in accounting terms, what that means is, I have a, a, a deficit. I am a sinner. I have sins accumulated and a sinful heart and nature. And this is standing in the way of God. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and shed His blood and said those words at the end of His suffering, it is finished. He said, the debt is paid in full. All of my sin was transferred to Jesus' account. And all of His righteousness was transferred to me. And by faith, my standing judicially before God. Now next week I'm going to talk about the the practical aspects of our daily walk. But all of my standing before God judicially in terms of sin is now I have a, a completely zeroed balance on the sin equation, and I have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when He died on the cross, He said, It is finished. He didn't say, Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a clean slate so you can start over. He said, It's done. The debt is paid. I want to explain to you a little bit this morning about Roman Catholic theology of justification. Because in our town in particular, we have, we have a struggle with it. But not only do we have a struggle because it's the Roman Catholic doctrine and we, we face it with statistically 70% of the people out there in our community, but because it's also functionally the way most Protestants and Evangelicals live. Let me explain to you. The Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is this, that the blood of Jesus Christ, the atonement, deals with original sin. It wipes it out, it cleans the slate, it, makes, it gives me a zero balance. But, now I have to work in righteousness the rest of my life to fill up the righteousness that will ultimately give me the worthiness to attain heaven in the presence of God. The bad things I do need to be paid for. After I become clean, the bad things I do need to be paid for by good things that I will do to offset them and I need to do other good deeds to kind of fill up that that uh, total amount of righteousness. So if I sin, I need to do some good works or I need to do penance. I need to uh, practice the sacraments. I need to go to confession or do penance or take communion or whatever that will accrue to my benefit. And the hope is that by the time I die, uh, the, the good will have offset the bad and even uh, gone a little higher and make me worthy to go immediately into the presence of God. If that's not the case, then I can go to purgatory and spend time there completing my righteousness and burning off my transgressions. And so, the, 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 the whole Catholic ideology is that God is kind of distant up there. He's still the judge. He's still keeping score. And um, in fact, He's pretty far away and, and pretty scary 
so I need some help a little closer to kind of help me get through the day. And, and some of the saints that have already fought this battle, they can help me out a little bit, and I can call on them. And, and Mary, the co-redemptrix, uh, has a, a, a softer heart, and, and I can get her help, and I can work through some of this stuff and hopefully offset the balance. And, and in the end, I hope I turn out okay but if I don't, my friends and family can also have masses said for me and one thing and another, and that'll shorten my time in purgatory. Now, most of you here this morning listen to me talk about that, and you say, that's not right. I, I mean, first of all, the whole purgatory thing, let's just get rid of that. We already did. We, we kind of threw that away. And we say, that, that whole process is not right. But, but listen to me, friends. Most believers... Most Protestants and evangelicals still live their lives functionally in their relationship with God as if that were the way. Because many of you in this room believe if I sin and mess up, God is going to be angry with me and he's not going to help me out. And if I do something good, he's going to be more willing to bless me. And we live our lives on this roller coaster of my performance is what determines how God relates to me. Do good, get blessed. Do bad, get punished. God's keeping score. I got to keep the balance. You know that's true in your heart. Many, many evangelical Protestant believers live their lives that way on a daily basis. Listen to the doctrine, the teaching, the gospel truth of justification by faith. It is finished. Period. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more than He already does. There's nothing you can do to entice His favor more than He already wants to bless you. There's nothing you will ever do that will so shock and offend Him that He will take back His promises in Jesus Christ and say, you know what? You're a bigger mess than I ever imagined. It will never happen. Because God has accepted you in Jesus Christ on the basis of your trust in the finished work that he has done. I want to read you a short excerpt from Martin Luther. Um, he was um, writing this as uh, he was in the tower of the monastery in kind of a devotional time. And this is Luther's testimony. He says, as a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Now, you might say, oh, I was pretty arrogant of Martin Luther to say that. But remember, the Apostle Paul said something very similar. He said, I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As touching the law, I was blameless. As far as anybody could judge my life, I was keeping all the rules. In fact, Paul said the thing that tripped me up was when the law said you should not covet. He said the stealing, lying, cheating, all that kind of part. Well, guess what? You can see that stuff out there. Everybody can see whether or not you're doing it. Coveting? Uh, not so clear. How do you know that someone doesn't want everything you own when you look at them? I mean, you can't tell coveting very well. Paul said it's the coveting that got me. I had the outward stuff okay. It was the inward stuff that was giving me grief. And so... Luther was experiencing the same thing. He said, as a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless. And I could not depend on God being satisfied or propitiated by my satisfaction. He said, there's nothing I could do that made me feel better. And so he said, not only, this is very candid, not only did I not love but I actually hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. 
Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Now, the, 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 the verses he was trying to understand were from Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, is revealed a righteousness from God on the basis of faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther said, I was struggling with that passage. And he said, day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then, finally, God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith, and that this sentence... The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as if I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. In the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures as far as I was able to recollect them. Seeking analogies in other phrases such as the work of God by which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God by which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, the glory of God. Just as intensely as I had before hated the expression the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praise this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. You see what Luther discovered? And he uses the word, I felt as if I had been reborn. The righteousness that is revealed in the gospel is not the righteousness that God has. That is not good news. If if you're lost in sin and somebody says God is a holy God and he hates sin, he's a perfectly righteous God, that's not good news, is it? But if you're, if you're aware of how sinful you are and how holy He is, and that there's a great gulf that separates you, and then someone says to you, Ah, but God is willing to give you a gift. It won't cost you anything because Jesus has already paid for it. And that gift that He wants to give you is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. You can have it if you will believe and trust that He has done this for you. It can be yours. And now all of a sudden you see, I can relate to God and come into His presence boldly and and be at ease in His presence and He can love me and pull me close to His heart the one who was once repulsive to him, I am now acceptable because Jesus Christ has given me his own righteousness and he has taken away all my sin. Friends, there is no more wonderful truth than this. Does it stir your heart? When once you have seen this like Paul or Luther said, I feel as if I have been reborn. When once you see this, I am free. I can have a relationship with God on the basis of what Jesus has done. And it it, it doesn't depend on me. It depends entirely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now I can come close to my God and and I can walk with Him and He can walk with me. Do you see how this changes the dynamic of things so very much? You don't have to be afraid of God anymore. And you don't have to run around naively saying, well, I must not sin anymore because I've got the righteousness of Christ. I mean, if you just open your eyes and pay attention, you know that's not true. 
you, you do sin, you do mess up, you, you, you come short, you're aware of that. But the point is, God has already dealt with it in Jesus Christ. It's already covered. It's already taken care of. He has given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now you can relate in real terms to a God who loves you and says, you know what? The, the, the greatest thing I want to do for you is I want to live in you and give you victory over that. You don't have to hide it from me. You don't have to run in shame. It's already paid for. But I'm willing to, to live in you and, and work with you on a daily basis so that you can have victory in your life. It's no longer a criteria for my, my relationship with you. That's already settled. Now it's a matter of learning to walk together and enjoy each other's company. Do you see how that changes things? Friends, when we have had our eyes open to the grace of God in Jesus Christ completely cleansing us and forgiving us, it ought to result in a transformation of my heart. You know, people are afraid of this message. The Judaizers were afraid of it. They said, Good heavens, Paul, you go to Galatia and you tell them that salvation's free and they don't have to do anything for it. What do you think that's going to breed? A bunch of pagans, they're just going to keep living godless lives. We've got to go give them the law. You know, and Paul says, no, 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 no. The law didn't do you Jews any good. Come on, wake up. You didn't get better because of the law. It just showed you how sinful you were. They're not going to get better. You don't need the law. They need to see the grace of God in Jesus Christ because it changes your heart. You cannot see how much God loves you in the face of the cross of Calvary and walk away from it unmoved. People say, I'm scared if you preach this doctrine because Christians will think they can just do anything. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 6. He says, if you followed my reasoning, it's so logical. If you followed my reasoning, you come to the end of chapter 5. Here's the conclusion you draw. Salvation is absolutely free. I don't have to do anything to get it, and I don't have to do anything to keep it. It is absolutely free in Jesus Christ. Okay, so what does someone say? Does that mean I can sin and grace can abound? And Paul says, God forbid... How could you think that? When you realize that you've been given this absolutely free relationship with God, that He's taken all the bad marks away, that He's completely zeroed out your balance forever, that He loves you with an everlasting love and you are safe and secure in Jesus Christ, how could you walk away from that and say, oh, I guess I can do anything I want. I've got all this free grace. He says, God has transformed your heart and if there doesn't spring up within you a wellspring that says, Oh my Father, I love you. And all I want to do is please you. If that doesn't happen to you, Paul says, you need to go back and check out whether you were saved. Jesus said to Nicodemus, being born again is like the wind. No one really understands where it comes from or where it's going, but one thing for sure, when it passes by, we see it move the trees. There is evidence. Salvation results in transformation. You can't be born again without, guess what, being born again. You're a new creature. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Paul says at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's been a change in you. John, in the end of his first epistle, says, I've written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't quote the verse out of context. Look at the whole book. What does he say? You love God. You have fellowship with Him. You want to walk with Him. You hate sin. You want to please God. You love the brothers. Look at your life. Not because you're working to gain God's favor, but because you've been changed. You're brand new in Jesus Christ. It's inevitable. If there's been this transformation, 
But friends, we need to stop living like the Galatians, like the Judaizers, like the Roman Catholics, and like most Protestants and Evangelicals who think that their walk with God is based on their performance. Our walk with God is based on grace and the work that Jesus Christ has done in the cross of Calvary. And I want you to know this morning that we had a newcomer's luncheon last week and I talked about some of the distinctives of the Christian and Missionary Alliance and one of the things that I said was that in the Christian and Missionary Alliance we do not split hairs and find points of, of what we call peripheral doctrines. I know I'm taking a risk in saying that because people who really think they're special don't think they're peripheral and they think they're core. But anyway, you know, you can be a Calvinist and be a, uh, in the CNMA. You can be an Arminian and be in, in the CNMA. You can be a Calvinian or an Arminianist or whatever you want to be uh, or none of the above and, and still be in the CNMA. There's, there's some things you have to believe. But we're not going to split hairs over eternal security, okay? There are Christian Missionary Alliance pastors who do not believe in, this, in the eternal security of the believer. There are Arminians among us, and there may be Arminians in the room. And that's okay. If, if you really believe that, that's okay. But listen, I don't think it's true. And here's why I don't think it's true. Because our God is a covenant-keeping God. And what He has done in Jesus Christ, He has done in Jesus Christ. And it is not up to the man who wills or runs. Paul says, I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I've committed unto Him against that day. The reason that I believe that I am secure in Jesus Christ for all eternity is not based on anything in the New Testament. It's actually based on a very special moment in the Old Testament. It's that time when Abraham believed God and the Scripture says God credited it to him for righteousness. Paul reminds us of that right here in Galatians when we get down to verse 6 of chapter 3. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Paul can't talk about salvation by faith without talking about Abraham. In Romans, he does the same thing. The whole end of the third chapter of Romans, he goes through this whole thing about justification by faith. And when he's all done, chapter 4, he spends a whole chapter talking about Abraham. Why is Abraham important? Well, several reasons. One of the reasons is Abraham simply trusted God. And the Bible says God credited to him for righteousness. That's justification. That's an important statement. But also, Abraham predated Moses by about 500 years. Moses was the lawgiver. He is the one who ushered in the Old Covenant. He's the one that came down off the mountain with the tablets. And, and God said, if you do all these things that I've given you, you know, I will bless you and be your God. And they said, okay, God, we're going to do all this stuff. And they never kept it. But Abraham was before that. Abraham is the father of the faithful, not the father of the law keepers. He's the father of the faithful. And Paul always goes back to Abraham and he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, here's the significance of that. In Genesis chapter 15, we have an interesting story. And it's a story of an interaction, a transaction between God and Abraham that Abraham would have understood because it was a, a, a um, symbolic way of enacting a contract that that leaders of his day practiced whenever there was a solemn occasion and there was a there was a treaty or a covenant or anything entered into between leaders and here's what they would do they would kind of dig a ditch with sloping sides and they would take sacrificial animals and they would cut them in half pretty gross huh I mean, just imagine that. Yuck. That is gross. They'd whack these animals in half. They would lay them out, one half on one side, one half on the other. Guess what would happen to all the blood and stuff? Ugh. It would run down in the trough. Pretty nasty kind of image, right? 
it's supposed to be. Because the next thing that the two parties to the contract would do, to say the two kings that had made a treaty, they would walk in the ditch between the halves and the blood would get on their sandals and the bottom of their robes and whatever. And what they were saying by doing that was, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I don't keep my promise. You can rip me apart and lay me in halves if I don't keep my promise that I'm going to keep this covenant. And so both parties would walk through the trough where the blood had flowed and they would keep the promise. So, So Abraham knew what God was doing. God was about to enter into a treaty, into a covenant with him. And and Abraham and God told him, prepare the sacrifice. And Abraham said, oh, I know what this is all about. We're going to make a solemn treaty here. So Abraham prepared the sacrifice. He he cut the animals in half, laid them out on the sides. The blood starts running down. And then Abraham, he gets knocked out. He goes into a trance. He's not able to do anything. Here he is supposed to enter this covenant, and Abraham can't move. He's in a trance. And while he's in this trance, he sees God come down, and God passes between the pieces. And then Abraham wakes up. And God says, today I've made this covenant with you. And it's like, what? I didn't do anything. That's right, you didn't do anything. I am the only one, God says, obligated to keep this covenant. Because I know human beings are frail and fickle. And I am not making this covenant dependent upon your faithfulness. It is only dependent on my faithfulness. I am the one who will keep this covenant forever. And Abraham, that day, was declared righteous on the basis of faith. Listen, friends. God is a covenant-keeping God. And if you have put your sincere faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ to give you right standing with God, this day you are fully justified in His sight. And He will keep His covenant with you. That ought to set your heart dancing. That ought to liberate you. That ought to to totally free you from any fear of judgment. The Scripture says there is always fear of judgment and punishment, but perfect love casts out fear. That ought to give you the ability to walk with God in freedom. And it should change your heart. God says this is the essence of the new covenant. Those tablets of stone, you could never keep them anyway. All your efforts are always going to come short. But I'll write my law on your heart when I come to live there. I'll bring my Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit, and I will live with you and in you, and I will bring my holiness into your heart. And out of your love for me will flow the passionate desire to obey me, and I will lead you from the heart. Next week I'm going to talk more about the practical aspects of walking in holiness with Jesus Christ by faith. But this morning, friends, I want to remind us, Jesus died to make us free, really free. He died to give us eternal life, to give us peace with God, to bring us into right standing. And that should change your heart. Go forth today knowing there's nothing you can do to make God love you less than He does today. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you more because He already loves you with an infinite love. By definition, it has no bounds. He has fully accepted you in Jesus Christ. You are completely clean. And I'm not afraid to to preach that message to you. There will be some you can point out to me that, well, they used to come to church and they used to do this and they used to do that and now they've just forgotten God and they're all living for themselves and... 
I want to tell you something, friends. We preach a gospel today that is weak and anemic and watered down. We not only fail to preach repentance properly, we not only fail to preach the law appropriately, we don't preach grace adequately. And people make emotional choices and and just all that sounds good and I want to go to heaven and there's no transformation of the heart. And many people sitting in the pews of many Bible-believing churches across America today are not born again. The Apostle John put it this way, they went out from us because they really were never of us. If you have been truly born again, your heart has been changed. And if you have seen the grace of God in Christ Jesus, you cannot help but love Him who has saved you and keeps you and holds you and will never leave you nor forsake you and will bring you safely to His heavenly kingdom and you can trust Him. And that will change the way you live. It must because it comes from a heart of love. We love Him because He first loved us. Father, open our hearts this morning to understand, to receive and to embrace the message of grace in Jesus Christ. To know that we have been saved today by faith. That not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. And that you are faithful to keep what we've committed to you against that day. That we can rest in you. And Lord, when once we've seen it, enable everyone in this room to leap with joy in their spirit. And to go forth out of here, hearts that are skipping like calves let out of the stall. The joy of freedom. God loves me. And I am forgiven. Oh, how I love Him. We praise You, Lord Jesus. Amen.